So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Um, I just really felt to not so much teach a whole bunch of stuff so much as to affirm something that we probably all are quite familiar with, but I think needs affirming. Um, Nat Dewar, a few weeks ago, was listening to Steve talk about, um, basically about God, God using you or being used by God and, um, and looking at what's in your hand and just the concept that God um, uses what's familiar to us um, and what we've already been equipped with when he's looking to, he's looking to use us. And Nat wrote a poem in response to this, which I really liked, and I hope <laughs> to God I don't butcher an interpretation of. But we're going to build this morning off Nat's poem. Yeah, you can come. Yeah, I need you. I don't want it. No, I want you to read it. Um, I'm, glad I had a, I'm glad I had a second half to that sentence, because that could have been awkward. Um, and, and so we're going to kind of build this morning around... Um, what Nat has um, to say. But first, I'm just going to read you um, a scripture from John 8, which will be the other half of what we build around. This morning's going to take a little bit of work for you. I hope you're, I hope you're ready. I know Rochelle's a bit puffed from walking all the way from Amir Street. Um, so, so you can relax. You've done, you've done your bit. But everyone else, we're going to need a little bit of work from you. Why don't you just close your eyes and hear what to some of you may be a new story and some of you may be a familiar story. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. It's from John 8. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, stone her. But let those who have never sinned throw the first stones. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to her, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Thank you, Nat. Do you want a chair or you? Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. What he held in his hand came in a moment of truth as he stopped to commune with a dark undergrowth. Persuaded by his mental physique, sidetracked by the glorious, his attention was piqued, the bright and the glittering. His tight handshakes, first takes... Size 12, aerial font, bold, underlined shape. His CV bound tight like an aristocrat's toe 
in Italian leather case. Polishing bright his goals, his KPIs, George Jensen cuffs the pins for his ties. On paper, it was charming. His sceptre gleamed from where he stood. This is where his stock shone, where his credit ratings were good. But they soon fell empty and flat in his hand as days to months to decades did pass, earth to earth fading to sand. Brought now to dig brought now to dig into the dirt of his soul, down into his conscience, falling into the rabbit hole. The dark parts, the offcuts, the dead ends and errors where he never came, like the old hometown shames. But in his dreams they dripped like a Dali desert. These were the sour petrol stations, dry sandwiches, gritty linoleum floors, a flat, frightening silence as he opened the car doors. The plain objects, reluctant transactions and economic downslides, not his top shelf smooth operator lines, but the high school rejections, the whispered, cruel declines. His informative knowledge of business Mandarin, education like armour that hung to his walls, or a divorce paper that lingered as he wept down the hall. His accurate use of a semicolon, well-stacked poets of Russian misery, or the childish toy collection he'd ironically reassembled in football guernseys. Who was the scared little boy waiting for the bus with braces on his teeth? Thoughts tragic as swans, parading around his head like a wreath. Curse these weed-like memories, cracking through his mind, cold, bluish concrete, like dung of the surf, slowing his capitalistic black pride fleet. But inevitably, Grace gently coaxed him to see the stones tossed aside, the bastard children of his head, playing dangerously alone in a waste suburban backyard shed. Under the surgeon's fluorescent day, they became his instruments, this shriveled wood of his soul, the chain gang slogs six days a week, the 4am black, tear-stained, childlike and meek. Can a scar turn into a stanza, a razor blade into a nib? A heart deprived and craving for far too long, brought, delivered and crying, screaming into a song. And in Secrets Showcase, just as a little boy, he played them out to God. A quiet desert play to a slow setting sun and falling to the ground, new days unfolded and slowly begun. Thanks, Nettie. All of us at some stage when contemplating who we are and how we stand before God and what our life's about and where our purpose lies and all of those things are forced to confront the fact that um, 
what's on the outside and what's on the inside don't always line up. Um, we're also forced to confront the fact that what the world values in us and what we might be taught to value might have completely missed the mark of what God actually values in us. And then with all our skills and all our training, all these things that were built up around us, which are definitely of value, um, despite their worth and despite their value, at our core, we're something more than just what we have to offer. We're something more than just what we can do. That behind the public perception of ourselves and even the image that we try and create ourselves, it is something that lies far deeper below all of that. Even for those of us who have managed to assemble some kind of confidence, there's these shadow stories that we know ourselves as children and as frail and as weak. And sometimes all of the exterior stuff doesn't feel like it stacks up to very much. And when we stand in a world and perhaps before an image of God that demands and expects something of us, it's easy to come, uh, come up feeling incredibly ho- um, hollow. One of the questions we face is, how does the world see me? And we can't help but let that affect the way that we see ourselves and the way that we feel that God sees us. We're relational creatures. But what I kind of want to explore this morning um, is an exercise in imagination and affirm something that I think is really central to the gospel about how God holds humanity and how God values humanity. We'll get a picture, um, and this is your exercise. Um, this is a man. He's a, it's a portrait of a real man. Um, some of you may know him, but hopefully you don't because it will only distract you from our, from our task. He's very bland, as you can see. <laughs> There's not much going on there. He's got a face like a man's thigh. He's coming. Tell me when he's there. You're right. We're all still learning to use Max. Um, And this is where you need your pen and paper. We're going to do an exercise in imagination. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you have to create this man. There he is. Um, So this this bit's up to you. Oh, yum. Um, First thing you need to do is give this man a name. What's his name? Uh, Individually, yeah. This is just you and your paper. You can write it down. See my pen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's his name? Some of you love imagination and will love this, and some of you, <laughs> some of you are going to hate this. That's good. Mm. Does anyone need a pen that doesn't have one? Or have you got a question? Yes, Rod. It's really open to interpretation here. Yeah. He can have a title. He can be Lord. <laughs> yeah, if you like. 
Where was he born? He has a hobby. What is his hobby? This man's worth $6 million. How did he make his money? He's at a conference. There's lots of people milling around there at a dinner afterwards. Three people meet him for the first time. And each of them really want to meet him again. What do each of them value in him? Or what do they have to gain? Three different things, three different people. I know, now you're going to come up with three more imaginary people. <laughs> For those of you with imaginary friends, it's going to be really easy. My imaginary friend got hit by a school bus when I was a boy. His name was John Jewlett. What a downer. <laughs> Please don't psychoanalyze that. Focus on your task. Three people meet him for the first time at a conference and want to meet him again. Each of them wants something different from him. What is it that they want? Extras for experts. What do you have to gain from this man?
Now, some of you here are being very noble, and others of you are being very real. He was betrayed by his best friend. How did his best friend betray him? He was betrayed by his best friend. How did his best friend betray him? What did it do to him? How did it change him? Last one. And I want you to think carefully about this one. He longs for people to recognize something about him, but no one seems to notice. He longs for people to recognize something about him, but no one seems to notice. What is it? Okay, here's the answers. No, I'm kidding. Um, it's an exercise of an imagination because this person is not real. Well, he is, but for all intents and purposes, he's not real to us. We have a streamlined process when we encounter people to categorize them as quickly as we can into boxes that we understand. But we also know that that gets perverted as well. Um, that can be used, it's, it's necessary sociologically, but it can also get perverted as well. And that we categorize people very quickly into, without even realizing it, what we have to gain from them. And whether they're worth pursuing as a person. But because we're human beings, we also understand that there's something more going on that each person we meet is a person, a human, 
with the story. That is many layers deeper than what we first encounter. We know this in part because we ourselves are people who meet people who are categorized. But we are also more complex than we first appear. Flip your paper over. And you might want a little privacy for this one. And, and you're not going to be asked to show anyone this. So this is just you. Three things I wish people knew about me. Three things I wish people knew about me. Are you going to press play, Alistair, on that? It's going to give you a little background music so you've got a bit of time for this one. Three things I wish people knew about me. might be my dumb phone. It turns itself down for no reason. It's an iPhone. You can just stop there, wherever you are on that one. Last question. Three things I secretly wish people recognized in me. Three things I secretly wish people recognized in me.
Now, if the questions sound really, really similar, that's okay. <laughs> Three things I wish people recognized in me. Sorry. <laughs> Cynthia's brain's hurting. Awesome. Who's struggling? Who's feeling alive? Excellent. I'm going to read you that story from John 8 again. And what I want you to listen for in the story is what happens to the woman. She starts off in one category, and that she's a pawn in a political game. But she finishes somewhere quite different. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd stood gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stood, sorry, stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, stone her, but let those who have never sinned throw the first stones. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers had heard of this, they slipped away one by one beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to her, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. What happens in the story is Jesus refuses to let her remain a pawn in a political game. The woman meant nothing to the Pharisees. They were simply using her to try and trap Jesus so that they could, could, so that they could accuse him, so they could stir up the people against him, possibly so they could bring him in front of the Roman authorities and have him crucified. 
It was a dangerous situation for Jesus. And possibly there's a whole heap of ways he could have dealt with it. But Jesus did what Jesus does, which is refuses to allow people just to be a category or a tool or a game. His prime concern in the center of all of this is the woman who's been brought before him. And rather than just making some kind of judgment call, he transforms this event into an encounter because he knows that there's so much more going on than just a political game. At stake here is the wholeness of a person who he loves. And this is what I want to affirm for us as a church community that we have to keep pursuing acts of imagination beyond the constructs of how we're taught to view people in the world around us. That we have to constantly approach each other in the world around us for far more than what we've got to gain from them, for far more than what they appear to us on the surface, but to continue to understand and know each other primarily as human beings. That beyond the surface story, there's always something more. And when it comes to gathering our gifts together, when it comes to how we view being used by God, before we can understand how we can be used by God, we first need to understand and have a huge depth of security in how God views us. That of primary worth and what we primarily bring is relationship and our humanness. Before we add value in any other way with the skills and the things that we do and what we can do for people and the resources and the assets that we've got, first and foremost, what God is centered on and obsessed with is our ability to be relational. That what God desires the most from us is a relationship that all other things come out of. And so maybe as a church community, as we serve each other, as we do things for each other, as we see each other, that rather than just treating each other like commodities and like people who can act in beneficial ways towards us, we first view people as relational beings. And I think it changes I think it changes how we perceive our community, both as individuals and as a group. I think we need to remind each other of our value as humans as often as we can. Because I think that the filter that we view ourselves through for the most part is what we can do and what we can do for each other. And I think to be Christocentric in this, to, to be orientated around Christ as a community means viewing each other and ourselves as Christ views us. Some of you here will be in the middle of major struggles over exactly what purpose you fill in the world and exactly what you're doing with your life. And that's okay. And that's a necessary struggle. 
But what I want to affirm is that firstly and primarily, beyond what you see you have to add to each other or to the world in terms of skill, in terms of ability, in terms of resource, first and foremost, what I want to affirm in you is what I think Jesus is trying to affirm, is that you are a person with a story, and everything that you do comes out of that humanness and that story and is of an immense, immense value. And you may have been categorized a hundred thousand ways, both in success and failure over your lifetime. But what I hope that we can orientate ourselves around it as a community is that we actually value each other's humanness. And then when we see each other serve and when we do gain from each other, it'll be in light of that. Small practical example. <laughs> it's sometimes interesting. We're a very social church. Watching the music team, who have got here an hour before all of us, trying to get people to engage with what they're doing when we're still trying to make cups of tea. If we see them as service providers, it doesn't really matter because they can wait. If we see them as human beings who are trying to offer themselves up in all of their insecurity and trying to gather us as a community around something valuable and we ignore them for five minutes because we really want to finish that conversation, what we're doing is we're treating them like a guitar-playing commodity. not a human being. And I think it's the wrong approach. And we do this to each other so easily because we're so used to thinking of the world and models of service. And because of efficiency stripping people of their humanity to categorize them faster. And what I want to keep returning to as a community is actually seeing the person behind the act, the person behind the service, we're going to take communion together. Communion is a radical reminder of how God sees us as humans with a story who also have gifts. It's a reminder because we had nothing to offer God in his service, in his act of sacrifice that God have everything to offer to us. And John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this little cracker and this little bit of juice as a constant reminder that what mattered most for God is relationship and personhood. That he gave all of that not to gain anything from us other than access to ourselves. I'd really like you to just take your little bit of cracker. And as you hold it, I want you just for a moment 
to try and suspend all measurements of yourself. And just be embraced by the love of a God who gave everything, not for what you can do for him, but for who you are. Lord Jesus, we return to you and thank you that just like the woman caught in the act of adultery, you refuse to just leave us being a category, a personless category, but you constantly pursue our heart, our relationship and our affection. Lord, let us see ourselves in that light and from that place of security. Let us continue to choose to see others. In Jesus' name, amen.